Right, hello everyone, and welcome to the OGCAMP 2019 panel! <laughs> Before we start, I just want to say a quick thank you to the sponsors, uh, Entraware, IBM, Ubuntu, <laughs> OpenSUSE, and Eight Circles. Uh, yeah, thank you to all of them. Yeah. Yeah, give them a round of applause. I'm Joe Ressington. I produce, host, and edit podcasts for Jupiter Broadcasting, which is part of Linux Academy. And uh, the panel before you are Caroline Keep. Hi, Caroline Keep, um, founder of MakeFest, the biggest digital making festival in the UK, first school makerspace in the UK, and I do a podcast with Dan. It's a little bit of a dirty podcast, not safe for work. <laughs> it wouldn't pass the code of conduct, I'll no, give it up. No, no. Uh, and uh, Josh Lowe. Yeah, hi, I'm Josh, um, and I create Edublocks, which is a drag-and-drop version of Python. Uh, it's quite popular um, somehow. Uh, I'm also a co-host of Mintcast, so you might have heard me on that. Um, and we talk about Linux, uh, specifically Linux Mint, uh, so that's um, a lot of fun. So, yeah, that's what I do. My first Linux podcast was uh, Mintcast, so you're carrying on in the good tradition. Uh, we've got uh, Laura Cowan, sorry, Dr. Laura Cowan. Is there a doctor in the house? <laughs> so I'm a developer advocate at IBM in open source software, and I've just finished my PhD in environmental psychology. And I was a regular presenter on the Ubuntu podcast for about seven seasons. But then you uh, left to become a doctor. I've left to finish the doctorate. <laughs> yeah, and uh, some bloke called Dan Lynch, I think, at the end. Yeah, um, I'm here for the trivia round. Music, sport, <laughs> uh, TV, uh, anything you want to ask me about that. Uh, yeah, so I'm Dan. Um, I used to be on the Nix Outlaws, you probably know that. I do Floss Weekly sometimes with Simon, who's probably around somewhere. Um, um, yeah. Um, ask me what you like, I'll try and answer it. Yeah, so this is going to be questions based. We had some questions submitted in advance. Uh, we'll get through them and if we have time, we might have some questions from the audience. We'll have to see how it goes. Uh, so the first question then is, what's your best OGCAMP memory? Um, let's start with Laura. You've been to quite a few of these. What's your best memory from OGCAMP? Not expecting anybody to turn up and then looking down the staircase at the Connaught Hotel where we had it. And there being like 75 people queuing up the staircase, which was just amazing. <laughs> and that was just my best dog come memory. Nice. What about you, Dan? Um, that's a really good one, actually. Yeah, that was great that people showed up. It's great that all of you I have showed up. I think you were stuck in the lift at the time. I were, yeah. Um, so that's probably one of my favourites. I've got loads. I won't go on. But uh, yeah, I got stuck in a lift at the first one. Um, I got a van full of pizza during the 2012 one. That was quite fun. Picture of me somewhere with a van full of pizza, not eating it. Um, yeah, I, I think that's probably it. And, and oh, actually, I'm going to, flagrant self-promotion, I'm going to mention my favourite moment was getting Stephen Fry to do a talk. I was quite pleased with that. Yeah, that was pretty cool. No, stop it, you. I don't like to mention it, although I just have. He, did, he didn't answer my question, though, so... Uh... Do you want me to do mine? Mine's got to be, I organised the, the exhibition in 2015, and my favourite's got to be trying to get the Quantum Tech Technology Club a giant antenna radio oh, yeah. for outside <clears throat> of the building. And so, it, was, it was huge. It was like this giant radio. Yeah, we had to just yeah. put it outside. So, very quickly for context, we had a group there who do ham radio stuff. 
and they were like, can we bring our antenna? And we, were, we said, yeah, bring yeah. your antenna. They brought their antenna. It was 30 feet tall. <laughs> and they wanted to stick it on the roof of the building. And the manager of the building went, no. So and we had to kind of, we made do health and by safety putting it outside, says no. didn't we? <laughs> yeah. So Josh, you're going to have to rack your brains here from all of the one odd camp you've been to. So, so this is my first time. First um, yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it's, it's been quite good. So uh, it's probably, um, I think having the, the kids track is quite good because it kind of brings that new perspective because at the end of the day, it'd be quite cool in 20 years' time to have some people sat here at odd camp, whatever year that will be. Um, so I, I think um, getting people into Linux at a young age and open source and kind of making that connection um, and hopefully doing it through the kids track at events like this um, is quite cool. So, yeah. Oh, excellent. Well, that segues nicely into our second question, which is what do you see as the main barriers for young people using Linux or FOSS? I think it's mainly awareness. The fact that like kids, if they're going to buy a laptop, they'll either go for a Windows machine or a, um, a Mac um, if they really want to spend money on Apple stuff for some reason. Um, so I think it's mainly awareness um, from one's perspective. Um, but another issue is that like kids need the fastest machine on the planet. And like when they have... Um, an old laptop that would probably just go in the bin, and they don't realise that that laptop can actually have a new life with like Linux. Um, so definitely awareness is a huge barrier um, with getting young people into it. I think if I ask people at school if they've ever heard of Linux before, maybe two people in the whole year group, um, and we have 180 kids will have heard of it or even used it. Um, open source software. Um, Maybe there's just a stigma attached to it that, oh, it doesn't look that good. But I, I use some really good open source software. And I think maybe kids just don't realize that free software, um, they actually use it all the time. Um, so a barrier is maybe just awareness with both of them, really, um, with young people. Yeah. Do you know people who use OBS, for example? Yeah. Um, there's probably loads of streamers that are kids my age that use it um, and don't gamers really know it. Gamers love it, don't they? All the yeah. game streamers. But presumably they only know it's free as in beer rather than yeah. free as in freedom then. Yeah. I'll probably add to that. So I can say that from a, from a school perspective. Um, we're pretty lucky to have, you know, I'm the founder of the first makerspace in a school. So I actually have a, a session where we introduce open source and what open source is and the difference between free and freedom and also what software is out there that you can use so our kids tend to pick it up much more but I think that's exposure so being able to have those kinds of conversations within schools is a, a really important thing to have going forward. Um, what about um, barriers for young people getting into tech generally? That I'd probably say is the same. Tech in generally is not really catered for at the moment. I don't, I don't think for the, the competence that you could have the real engagement that you need, you know, the types that, that Josh, it'd be a perfect example of, um, isn't really there uh, in schools. Um, the average amount of time that students are spending doing computer science overall is decreasing in comparison to what it was five years ago in ICT. The numbers are going down, they're not going up. We're putting a lot of funding into it, but not a lot's coming out of it. And it's probably because it's been done in such a prescriptive way um, that it's not quite the creative 
and, and interesting and engaging thing we need it to be. You know, um, we've done a lot of stuff. Joss has done many, many make fests. And it's kind of, you get a project that you really like and you're totally enthusiastic about it and you get really into it and you build it and that's how you develop those skills. It, it's not necessarily do this task and regurgitate it on screen and then do this task and then regurgitate it. So you make a spaces, and there are many of them popping up, um, Pat Links, Neston, plenty of them behind me um, that are coming together now to, to offer those particular type of skills for young people to really get them engaged in their own projects, their own learning, their own open source projects. Because at the moment, you know, if, if you look at the tech that kids have access to, compared to when we were kids, they've got so much more access, but it's generally more of a kind of consuming, isn't it? Kids are very led down one direction. I was having a, a good conversation a minute ago with um, some of the guys from the Open Rights Group. The, the school environment is very much being driven towards a, a sort of a consumer base um, a lot of the major tech firms invest in schools they're putting stuff into schools but it's very much use our technology and use it frequently but don't be able to see what it is don't be able to to look at it you know don't be able to do anything with it because we want you to consume it so really being able to take something apart and see what it's made of is an essential skill. And our generation, I think, did have a lot of that. You know, you, there were a lot of open source projects. You could hack into something and see it. A lot of it didn't looked. work. That was the I problem. know, but that's not the point. You'd be there, like, trying to load a ZX that, Spectrum game and, like, it doesn't work. No, I know. But at least that was an option for young people. Yeah. It wasn't screen based. You can't get into it. It's proprietary. Yeah, you can't access it. Now, a lot of it is screen based proprietary you can't access it mm -hmm. so i think that shift's happened and now we've kind of got a shift back isn't it a case though that not everyone uh, you know not all kids have the inclination for it no that's fine not all the kids have the inclination for art but we still do that yeah fair <laughs> enough because so there's a, a, an experiment that i like to do when i have a group of people together especially linux people um everyone put your hand up if when you were a kid you looked inside the toilet system to see how it worked. <laughs> yeah. Almost 50, everyone. 50% of the panel, but not all of us. Yeah, all, almost everyone. And, you know, I think that there's, obviously there's more than two types of people, but, you know, I break it down to people who did look in the system and people who didn't. And you'd probably find that the kids who are enthusiastic do that because they want to know how things work, right? I think, I think with that one, uh, not to... to to go on about it. I think it's exposure. So I teach, you know, uh, last week I was doing robotics. Some of my girls were well into it last week and they really love the robotics. Some of my lads, not so much. Um, and uh, you get different genders, different mixes. Some of my girls like wearable tech. Some of them really love 3D printing. Some of them hate it. Some of them are very much into open source projects. Some of them really like Linux. Some of them really like Raspberry Pi. But they have the option with ours where they all get exposure and they can all pursue it at their rate. And that's the difference. I think with majority of schools, as I said, most of them get exposure to art. Not all of us are. I'm certainly not artistic, but I still got art lessons. You know, so having a series where you can expose kids to a range of technologies so that they can be picked for themselves. You know, they're more than smart enough to be able to pick their own choices. Yeah, I think... Um Going back to the, the, the school point of um, kids, well, computer science and coding and tech just is not done right in schools. I really don't want to turn this into a political debate, but we Go all know it. who's to blame for that. Um, Are you going to blame the Tories? <laughs> so 
It's not a good debate to get into with us two on this panel. I think think that the way computer science is taught at my age, so GCSE, is just boring. It is not taught right. It's not the teacher's fault. It's the curriculum. The curriculum's just not fit for purpose. It it needs to change. And that is why we're seeing the numbers dropping. Um, And it, it gets frustrating as someone who likes tech and likes coding and likes computers... Uh, to see every single year the same BBC news article coming out saying, oh, numbers have dropped in computer science. And then you actually look at the past year and you think, well, what have they actually changed about it? You know, the same article has been released like for the past three years, yet nothing's actually been changed. Um, So I proposed the idea on Twitter of making like a project-based curriculum where kids have 10 projects, let's say, um, in the two-year course, and they apply the, the theory side, like binary and that, is important, but why not apply that into, into projects that kids will actually be engaged with? Um, and then we might see an um, a increase in numbers, but the Department for Education probably won't listen to me because I'm a 15-year-old, but that's they my should. idea anyway. Yeah, they definitely should. I'll add to that, if you are a school out there... Just open yourself a makerspace, run it on side your curriculum. You know, that's the way to get around this. Just open a makerspace, set yourself a digital program and run it alongside your GCSEs is the best way to do that. And that does increase your numbers. Sounds good. Um, Well, that segues nicely into the next one. This is going pretty well. Uh, What are the panellists' favourite Raspberry Pi projects? So, Laura, what's your favourite Raspberry Pi project? I assume you have got at least one. Yeah, I've not done projects with Raspberry Pis. I've used it as a server in the house, but not for specific things. I guess um, I've done more with Arduinos. All right. Well, what's your favourite Arduino then? I have two. Uh, Well, one of them, uh, we uh, went to a wedding last year and they had a competition of of fascinators. Never worn a fascinator ever. Um, It's the weird thing that women put on their head on weddings. Sort of a hat, but not. Sort of a hat, but not. Um, (laughs) So we made an LED one that was Wi-Fi connected. Nice. Which is quite cool. <laughs> What's the other one then? Uh, oh, that was um, Jedi lights. Uh, so along this, the back of my headboard, so I'd had a, a light that could switch on easily. Um, and it, you just wave your hand and the lights came on. Nice. And uh, it went rainbow colours. Excellent. What about you, Dan? Um, that does sound excellent. I haven't done anything that exciting compared to this. Mine are kind of boring. I use, I've got about three Raspberry Pis at home. One of them's an open VPN server, so that'd be one of my favorite projects. Although that really I can't take any credit for because I use PyVPN, which you just enter a command and let it like curl a bash thing in, which is probably incredibly insecure. Yeah, then run it as root. Uh, yeah. And then they run it as from the Chinese government, yeah. Um, so, um, <laughs> so I've got that. It's one of my favorites. Um, and then um, other ones. I, I don't know. I failed at a lot of Raspberry Pi projects, to be honest. I tried to make a Pycroft, which... Uh, the Mycroft voice thing, which once had Popey's voice, uh, I believe. Did it tell you um, what beans were? <clears throat> yeah. <laughs> um, I just, it failed for some reason, and I never got back to doing it again. But mine are, yeah, probably quite basic. I use them for mainly for home servers, like, like Laura was saying. I, uh, I would, I'm going to stick with the, with the OpenVPN project, because I do use that a lot, actually, to dial into my home network. And it just runs, and it uses hardly any electricity, and it's quiet. Fair enough. Josh? Um, so... One project is not necessarily my project, but um, 
the 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 Primaroni Piecade kit that they've made. Um, I, I think that's just such a a unique use of the Raspberry Pi that like you can build your own like model size arcade cabinet um, and like play really retro games. Obviously, like I know none of them, um, but. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I, I just think that's a really cool uh, application of it, and um, it's, it's kind of like a hybrid between the mic bit and a Raspberry Pi project. Um, but Lorraine Underwood, you might have seen it on Twitter, uh, it kind of went viral um, a, a, about a year ago. Uh, she built a, an 8x8 um, LED cube, not like one that size, um, but it was out of ping pong balls and um, copper rods, um, and it was controlled by the Raspberry Pi of the mic bit. Um, I, I think I think these are ways to show that like um, the Raspberry Pi and um, things like it can be applied to um, such big projects, but they can be made so much easier to control with like the Raspberry Pi. Um, so they're really uh, two cool projects that I've seen with it. Presumably, you use a lot of Raspberry Pis then, Caroline. Uh, yeah, I use loads, but I try not to preference a project because we've always got about thirty going on in the space at any one point. So I'm going to be um, some of the projects I've seen over the years, not any of the current ones that are ongoing. Um, I think I've seen quite a lot, lots of robotics projects, um, lots of robots. We get robots all the time being built in Raspberry Pi. Uh, I really like. Um, when we, we see ones that are for, um, what am I trying to say here? Sonic Pi. A lot of our kids use Sonic Pi in music. I love watching them use music with Sonic Pi. It's really nice. I've seen IoT-based builds. I've seen a Mycroft in our space. If you want our kids to help you with that. Um, uh, probably, I could probably use it, yeah. Yeah, Dan could probably use it. Um, uh, we've got a few of those projects that are going on there, really nice. Um, we've seen uh, weather station-based projects. We've seen a weather station-based project that was IoT that tweeted our weather. We've seen loads and loads of them. Our kids use them quite prolifically. Um, so camera trap projects, like I'm getting this moment in the crowd where people are going, oh, that project that I've seen in your space. So yeah, camera trap projects where we capture data. Oh, a bunch of my kids. One of them wants to work at the moment, which is one of those projects I've got to get around to, where I need to source a beehive for apparently. And if anybody's got either that or a vending machine, anybody who's got a vending machine, you know, like a big one, like one of those, I need one of them apparently. So I get asked things like, miss, can you find me a vending machine? Because we want to hack it with a Raspberry Pi or Miss can you find me a beehive because we want to set up an ecosystem with a Raspberry Pi so quite often I get the you know the big project and then we have to kind of figure out exactly how we're going to do it so it's really cool do you find that sometimes you have to kind of temper their expectations? Always. <laughs> Always. Quite often you have that moment where they'll say a project. I mean, we're quite lucky. The first thing we teach our lot is to project manage um, and design, think it through. Um, and that is a really crucial skill with young people because if you just put them in a room full of kit, then you end up with this moment where they come back to you and they go, oh, I've got this idea. And the idea is way, way bigger than you'd imagine it to be. And then you've got to basically go, right, how's the stages we're going to do that? But that's why we run it five years. So a kid could turn up in year seven and work five years straight on a project with us. So that's why we made it so that they could do that. So yeah, we've got a couple of ones at the moment who are working on braces for 3D printing. They want to put sensors in them. That's a really nice one. And all a few of them trying to do stuff on coral at the moment. In, in making coral more sustainable in oceans somehow and sensors that they could monitor coral. So, yeah, the big problems, but we've got five years, they can work through them. That's the whole point. 
And in fairness, I've only been on my Pycroft project for one year, so I've got four left. <laughs> yeah. It'll work in four years. <laughs> we'll hold you to that. Um, right, so we had quite a long question, uh, which I've had to cut down and summarise. Um, but the, the crux of it is, what can our communities do to become more accessible? And uh, the person asking the question was talking about how websites are very rarely accessible. And I think almost all of, probably all of us on the panel have got a website. I've never even thought about making it accessible. Um, but it, it's, you know, it can become a broader question beyond just websites. I mean, just events generally. What can we do to make them more accessible? Dan, you've been organizing events for a while. Mm -hmm. Is accessibility something that you think about? I mean, it's... Um, the, the person asking the question said it's often an afterthought. Yeah, um, it, it's definitely something that, that I think about, and we try and we try really hard to, to make a part of OGCAMP that we always have. Um, we've had some challenges with that, and to be to be honest, it's going to sound like I'm passing the book here, but sometimes you find that, um, and this is my fault probably for not you know being able to find the right venue. Sometimes we've had to use a certain venue, and it hasn't been as accessible as it could have been. And then it's it's like they haven't thought about accessibility. I've tried to hack it on by like building a ramp somewhere that doesn't really work and things like that. Um, it's a tough one. I mean, in terms of web stuff, um, I many I, I should do more. I admit for uh, things to test sites on things like screen readers, particularly. Yeah. So I did do that. Um, I used to work. I always say this, but it's like I've got like a. You could make a soundboard of things. I say one of them is I used to work for the NHS. So I, when I worked for the NHS, we did websites, and um, we used to we did actually about fifteen years ago we did actually test them all with screen readers. Um, but that had nothing to do with any of our management or any of anyone else. It was because one of the guys in our very small dev team introduced me to screen readers and was very personally kind of invested in that. And we chose to do that, and it was great. And we, we did. We tested every site. We made sure you could listen. We used things like Orca and other things to test that you could use a screen reader. So I'm sure most people probably know, but a, a screen reader in this sense is something that will read the text from the website to you. Did you um, test it with the screen off? I mean, it sounds like a funny thing to say. but Yeah. Um, no, we didn't. We, um, well, usually there was a couple of us, and one of us would be on one side of the desk, and one was on the other. So one could see the screen, and one couldn't. Right. So they, they, you'd know if they'd try and see if they could work out what what was going on yeah. effectively. Did you test it without a mouse? Um, did we test it without a mouse? Probably not. You know, I'm trying to think. Yeah, because you wouldn't see the pointer. No, we did test it without a mouse because you wouldn't. So screen readers usually have keyboard only control, don't they? Because um, yeah, good point. Yeah, and of course accessibility isn't just about visual impairment as well. There's, well, there's, yeah, yeah. You know, there's people who have limited mobility and stuff, and yep. you know, can only use a keyboard or whatever. Yeah, I mean, it's a tricky one. I, I mean, I, I don't have a, a great answer for this, unfortunately. I think we could all do more. Would be my kind of thing. I know I could probably do more, but it's something that needs to be thought of um, more immediately, I suppose, and not an afterthought, as you said. That is a really important thing. It's not been an afterthought. Hopefully, people haven't found that in play, things like oh, can't we try really hard to to make everywhere accessible. When we came to check the venue, I did check everywhere that, you know, you had wheelchair access, you had all these other sort of things that you would need. It's not as great as it could be, I'll be honest, but it's, it works, it's pretty good. Um, so we did check things like that, but um, it's an ongoing thing and, and it, it should be more just some, I mean, all that, I think it's a lot to do with regulations now. So all venues now, I mean, any public building has to have a certain amount of of um, certainly physical access and accessibility and stuff, that's in the law, and a lot of them still don't comply with that. I don't know how they get away with it, but mm. I've been to a few that don't have like corridors wide enough to 
Oh, really? Yeah, wheelchair in it at points. But it's just because they're so old. They're like, ah, oh, the building was built, built before that was a problem, yeah. <laughs> apparently. So I don't know. But um, yeah, I haven't got a hard and fast answer. But yes, we definitely try um, for our camp and other events. Is it something you ever think about, Josh? Uh, yes, yeah, so um, Edgebox, which is the uh, software that I make, um, it's a it's a visual drag and drop coding tool. So basically, the whole thing is visual UI elements, and you really have to think every decision you make. Um, what happens if I move this button to the bottom right hand corner of the screen? What is that going to affect the person using it? And because it's used in schools, um, you've really got to think everything you kind of um, anything to like the main website, the resources design, uh, the app design, um, anything like that, uh, you kind of have to think about accessibility. Um, and obviously when you're dealing with like um, a color palette which has like 30 different colors on it, uh, you have to go through um, and see, well, which color is going to um, work for this person with color blindness and how might that affect the use of the program. Um, so I was actually lucky in the fact that um, I had a design team approach me um, and say, do you want a new branding pack um, as a sponsorship thing? Um, and they actually went through and sorted all the accessibility uh, stuff uh, for me, which was quite good. Um, so yeah, I, I have dealt with that um, quite a lot. And it's something that I, I think about daily, basically, when I'm doing stuff. What I use Josh's stuff, it's perfect for accessibility. Um, there's, I guess there's two things I do it in teaching, but I do it in MakeFest, don't I? In fact, Dan, you do it in MakeFest, but you don't realise it as well. What's that, sorry? Uh, accessibility. Okay, yeah. So when we run our my, our, my festival, which is slightly, um, it's quite, uh, it's the biggest digital festival because it's in a library, um, in Liverpool Library once a year, we have to think very, very closely about accessibility um, and obviously come under the library regulations and guidance and we do a lot for inclusion in that. So things like wheelchair access, but also things like uh, what fonts we're using on things for dyslexia and dyspraxia, what colour palette is involved in virtual things so that it's visual and permanent and it can come across and how each activity we assess them so we can see that they're inclusive of everybody and we tend to give a little bit of guidance on each one to say what age group or what area we think could be appropriate for each one. So it's it's pretty much at the forefront when I think about things. And obviously teaching, as Josh said, you'll have thought about this long and hard. You have to make sure it absolutely encompasses every type of student you're going to come across. So it's right, right up the top there, but education it will be. All right, that's good to hear. Okay, anyone here work for Microsoft? Right, good. Uh, <laughs> Nobody's go. willing to admit it anyway. <laughs> so the next question is, does Microsoft hearting Linux concern you? Uh, and if so, are you uh, considering using other FOSS operating systems instead of Linux? So yeah, do, do we think that uh, Microsoft's love of Linux is a good thing or a bad thing, I suppose? I'm curious to hear the arguments of it being a bad thing beyond just reaction to Microsoft. Well, beyond the history. Yeah, but specifically what? I mean, Microsoft's very different now from what it used to be. Well, uh, okay, right, let's have a show of hands from uh, the audience. Uh, uh, okay, so Microsoft and their love and involvement with Linux is it uh, will do good, meh, and bad. So broadly a good thing, hands up. 
meh and bad. So only a very small number of bad, the scattering of meh and quite a lot of good. I'm interested that you said, would it make, or the question, whoever asked the question said, would it make you use other FOSS operating systems? So we're we talking BSD or something? Well, like? I assume so, yeah. So without getting too kind of, you know, without getting too difficult about it, if I was, to, why would I use, why would I go to BSD when I've got an operating system that's under the GPL, which is protected by the GPL, and go to a BSD system with a BSD license where it could be taken and turned into macOS like it was before? Yeah. And all these other things. I don't think that's better or safer in my opinion. Nothing wrong with BSD, it's great, but legally, it's definitely not safer. In, from a licensing point of view, I don't think, if you, if you care about your stuff staying open source. Yeah, is Wimpy in? Uh, have, have a drink, licensing mentioned on the panel. <laughs> Yay. Um, Josh, you use Linux a uh, little bit. Yeah, Are you worried so, by it? Um, I think it's a good thing. Going back to um, the second question uh, that we talked about of um, young people barriers into Linux. You know, these people are using Windows, um, and if Microsoft are putting a subsystem for Linux in the operating system that these young people are already using, um, that's going to increase exposure to the Linux world, and maybe I, I, I just see it as a good thing because um, I, I actually um, have been using it for the past few months. Um, and what, from what I can see, it's not going to replace Linux um, because, for example, uh, what I use it for mainly is um, running a Node.js server so I can do the development for Edubox. But then when you build in the offline app, which is an, an Electron app to run on Linux, you can't do that on Windows and have the same level of testing uh, because you need to test it on Linux. So it's always going to have its place. Um, and I think it'll do good for Linux in the awareness uh, side of things um, with kids that aren't familiar with Linux um, and kind of bringing that exposure through the operating system that they already use. This is a hard one, this one, Dan. It's like, I think the nerves are there because I suspect of how Microsoft's rep used to be with the open source community. But I think me and Dan have said this before. I think that you said to me a while back ago when we were debating this, I think that argument's gone. We've, the, the open source community have sort of won that argument, I think. I think Microsoft has, has to come up more on board with the open source community mm -hmm. than, than fight it, really. Yeah, and, and I they think, have done. Yeah, I think they have done, and I think they're changing. So I suspect the question is, you know, really, do you trust the change that's... So, well, yeah, yeah, and do you there? forgive them? Do you forgive them their well, sins? So the issue yeah, well, is... maybe. <laughs> the, issue here, uh, the issue is to kind of play devil's advocate a little bit here, because it seems like everybody agrees almost on the panel, and I feel a bit bad, because there's clearly people in the audience who feel strongly about it. The argument is, and I understand why, um, that in 2002, I'm going to roll it out again, Steve Barmer came out and called Linux a cancer that needed to be eradicated, yeah. and all other stuff, and that was really offensive. To be called a cancer is quite an offensive thing. I would imagine um, and so you need to be eradicated and all that and I had friends who were personally hurt by that and they, they took it personally for whatever reason um, and I don't think they'd forgive them so quickly but the difference is in my opinion that Microsoft isn't Steve Barmer he was the guy who was there at the time he had an opinion <laughs> clearly a very strong one he had a way of doing things which we you know it was like eradicate anybody who might be competition but un they're under new been under new management for a long time now and they've changed a lot of their policies I'm not saying they're perfect because, you know, 
that nobody is, but they've changed a lot and they've hired a lot of the um, top open source developers um, and they're paying them to work in the same way that like Google and other people who seem to get a lot of love from uh, a lot of the open source people who often aren't any better towards <laughs> open source projects, if I'm honest. Um, they get a lot of love for employing people who do like, you know, Python for half of their time, like like Guido van Rossum, and then and then do Google stuff in the rest of their time. Microsoft are doing that as well now. So if if you agree with Google doing it, then you should be happy that Microsoft are doing it too. I can probably say one thing. If you say that, then if you agree with Google doing it, you agree with Microsoft doing it. Is that I see I see school databases. I see us all using different types of software in schools. I will say that having had a good look at how Microsoft use and how their views are on data privacy regarding students' information, I'm much happier with Microsoft than I am with Google. And I think that's where my line comes in for that. You know, do we really want all their information going out the door? So, you know, that, that's how I see it. So maybe friendly scepticism? <laughs> Can I have that? I guess... I'm curious of what people are worried about them doing, because I know the whole history side of things and whether you trust them and whether you can forgive and all that kind of thing, but what are people worried about them doing by declaring they love Linux? I, I think, um, obviously, Microsoft, uh, I, I don't know how long, it might have been a year and a half ago, bought out GitHub, and I remember when that was announced, everyone was like panicking, switching their accounts off, moving to GitLab. And then you look at the past year and a half and you think Microsoft acquiring GitHub has like, and then the GitHub have added so many new features and put developers first in the past year and a half. And I think they have ever done. Um, and I go to a lot of Python events and um, PyCon, uh, the PyCon America, um, their main sponsor is Microsoft. And like before, before kind of like, um, Microsoft adopted the whole Linux and open source thing. Uh, you didn't really see Microsoft at all of these events, but now everyone I go to, I can't remember an event that didn't have Microsoft as its main sponsor. Yeah, um, very quickly on that point, uh, sorry, Josh. Um, if anybody went to FOSDEM this year, FOSDEM, yeah. the biggest community, you know, free software, open source community event in the world, huge 10,000-odd people, the two sponsors were Google and Microsoft. Yeah. And I looked at that on the thing and I was like, what the? I was sat in a talk about data privacy and I opened the, the brochure and it said, Google, Microsoft. Yeah. And I was like, oh. And I think my opinion is, is that's, that's, that's what I've got my eye on more. Yeah. What, what's their attitudes towards that? Because I know Microsoft, I asked, I asked when I seen them at BET, the big educational conference, and they were very clear that their position is very much about we have a product and we want you to get this product, but we are very interested yeah, in protecting your in data, yeah. whilst Google were less so. What about the idea that the management at Microsoft now are very friendly to us and the direction of travel of Microsoft is positive? But that could easily change. And is that not something to be worried about? Yeah, I think, I think we, obviously, Microsoft could be playing all um, nice guy at the minute. And then in two or three years' time, they could just take advantage of the whole thing. Um, but from what, from what we've seen in the past few years, I, I don't think that'll happen. Um, because Microsoft have kind of built up such a reputation within 
this community and such a acknowledgement as nice people and trying to do good for open source and Linux that they kind of won't go back on the decision of being nice to everyone. Um, so I don't think I, I don't think we should cross out the idea of Microsoft kind of like in a few years taking advantage, but like I really don't think they'll do it. Yeah, they could absolutely change course, but the thing is that if they're contributing to the Linux kernel under the license of the Linux kernel, I'm, going to, I'm doing it again, sorry. One for you, Martin. Um, another one for you. Um, but if they're contributing under the GPL, V2, albeit, but still, then they can't later go, actually, we want that code back. Or they could stop developing it. They could employ a load of developers and people just think, oh, we don't need to develop it to a point where they are the only people developing a certain point, then drop it. But that doesn't mean that other, other people can't then pick it up. They can never own it in that way. They can never say, this is ours, we own it all, secret source. You know, you, you're done kind of thing. So I, I think, yeah, basically what Laura said, I mean, what are people worried about them doing in that sense? Well, you have to ask what's their motivation. I mean, what, what do you all think their motivation is for doing it? They're not doing it just for a laugh or to be nice, are they? It's where the market is. You've got to be with developers and you've got to have open source on your side and to get to developers now. So I think that's what they're doing really well. They're recruiting some of the best developer advocates into the company at the moment. Um, Change of job coming up. <laughs> um, and you see people going there and you're like, you know, people coming from, they've left Oracle, they've gone to Microsoft, or they've left, you know, it's, it just is. And at the point where they, I guess, where they feel that it's not working out, they'll start leaving. I mean, we, we, we see, don't we, that um, Microsoft are now doing MakeCode, yeah. um, and they've, built, they've put so much money behind this kids' coding platform yeah. and putting yeah. it into schools. Um, Categorically. And that, that's not something that we could ever have imagined 10 years ago that Microsoft would actually be building an open source coding platform for kids. Um, that, I think yeah. there's no strings as well. Yeah. And that's the main thing. I think, yeah, don't get me wrong, Dan, I felt that level of skepticism. You know, I have, but I think the, I think they, I've seen several interviews and I, and I researched the life out of it before I decided this one. But in all honesty, I think their attitudes have changed. I think were they, they came very, out and said maybe they were wrong with the open source community and maybe they needed to change. And I think these last years they really have. And I think that's worth investing in. I mean, as I said, not necessarily in a way that's not, let's just take this a step at a time. But I think, you know, you said it, Fosdem, we were both there. You know, it was Google and Microsoft. And, uh, you know, I say to you, who do you want you, you know, your evil overlord to be? No, neither of them, really, to be honest. Yeah, um, you know. Amazon. Yeah, yeah Amazon. No, I, I think they've Sinclair. invested. I think they've <laughs> invested school. in make code. They've invested in education in a way that hasn't compromised young people. Yeah. Um, I'm not supposed to give my opinions because I'm supposed to be moderating, but I can't help it. Um, it. It seems to me that Microsoft's motivation is pretty clear. Teach kids to code and they'll grow up, make applications, and hopefully use Azure on the back end and they'll make some money. 
Well, I was just going to say, you said, what do they want? They want more Linux VMs running on Hyper-V and all that other stuff. That's yeah. what they want. And Azure and all, all of that. It's a business, isn't it? All businesses, here we go, getting it political now. All businesses exist to make money. Yeah. They all want to make money. They want to make more money. That's what they're there for. That's their only reason to exist. So there you go. Yeah, but I'd probably say I'm happy with them having that when it's an optional thing. When they're kind of like, aha, here's make code. Do you want to use that? Do you want to get involved in mm -hmm. that? Optionally use these things. Yeah, and and it still gonna, gives benefits. Yeah, I mean, it still reaps benefits. It's when they their goals it. align with yours, you, mm. you can reap the benefits. Yeah. Will it stay like that? Probably not. Yeah, right. I think we've probably got time for one or two quick fire questions. Does anyone have any questions? Hello. I'm guessing all of you have uh, tried to install Linux on the laptop or the desktop. I'm wondering how many of you have tried to install a custom ROM on your phones? Custom ROM? Uh, I've done that. Um, I used to use CyanogenMod um, years ago. Um, I used other things. It's got a lot harder, though. So going back to Google again, they've made Here it harder go. and harder and harder to install anything else on an Android phone. It used to be not that hard to like flash another bootloader on it and do all the rest of it. And now they do all these things where like, if you don't press a certain button when you switch it on after you flash it the first time, it reflashes itself back to the Google thing. And it's become more and more locked down. Just a very quick thing then, if serious alternatives, how many people have used Replicant, for example? That's still going, the Replicant project, it's a fork of Android. So there's one person at the back who's used Replicant, there you go. Um, so, and F-Droid and stuff like that, anyone use F-Droid? Which is, there you go, okay, so F-Droid's hey. more popular as a free app store. That works. Um, so I'm the only source. one. Well, the, the questions that for this panel have been read off my OnePlus 3T running lineage. Okay, there you go. Albeit yeah, with, yeah, yeah. with Google Apps as well. But, uh, you know. With evil added. You know, half. I, half I run added. a full Android phone, so I've got no, no room to criticize. I just want it to work. Uh, any other questions? On mobile devices, are any of you excited for things like the Pine Phone that there's actually going to be a choice of operating systems to run on? It's a small niche effort for enthusiasts, but it, it is going to be widely available to anyone, not just developers, early next year. So, And they, they, they are they're collaborating with developers of several operating systems to make sure they'll run on the device as is when it's released. You're looking at me again. Uh, no, I, no, yeah, I haven't tried the Pine Phone or, or looked at it, but I do. It's not available yet. Yeah, but I haven't. Sorry, I haven't properly kind of looked into it yet. But I do really like the Pine Book and some of the other stuff that they're doing. Pine sixty four. Um, I, I went to. I was when I was at um, an event last year in Edinburgh. They were showing me their KDE, uh, the KDE Plasma stuff as a phone user experience on a tablet, uh, a Pine tablet at the time. It looks great, but it's the same old problem of, of um, to reach end users. I, I had the problem of like, how do I install, oh, I can't remember what it was, just some app, like something evil, let's say like WhatsApp, because I use that. Um, and they were like, oh, you can't at the moment. So for most people I know, they'd be like, well, that's no use to me. Well, yeah, I mean, they never have sold it as anything other than a phone for hackers and tinkerers. Right, okay. What about the Librem 5 then, in that case? Is anybody interested in that? No? Okay. Uh, I don't know much about it. I just know that that was the big hope for a free phone at one time. If uh, you remember, when we were at Fostem, we attended one, and we were talking about this, about, I think, on the opening day, they were saying about um, 
actually having phones and the apps that you'd want to use, it's become increasingly difficult to actually have the apps that you want on a phone that isn't one of the major, you know, Android or because you can't just shoot. And who was it who was speaking one of you all? Or? Um, probably Bradley or Karen. Bradley, from I the think free it was. And Karen from the free software software. One of you all up. Yeah, one of you all up. Um, yeah, and it was literally, she was, uh, she couldn't find a way without Google Maps, but she just got so oh, that was, sick of yeah, it. Yeah, that was Karen Sandler from yeah. Software Free and Conservancy. Yeah, and she, we were talking afterwards and she said, I've just, I just got so sick of it that I just, in the end, I just sort of gave in. Yeah, it's difficult. I mean, it, hopefully it'll, we've been talking about the, 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 I mean, does anyone remember the green phone from years ago? That was like the Linux phone. It was like, it's the green phone and it's going to be massive and troll tech or whatever. Um, and it never quite made it, unfortunately. The problem is the mobile world seems to be even more cutthroat than any other part of technology because they're always trying to kill each other. All these people have got Microsoft coming in. Sorry again, Microsoft, but coming in, kill Nokia, all that stuff, and then they, they make the teams compete with each other or inside these mobile companies. And it feels like a really cut... You can be at the top one minute and dead within a year in the mobile industry, like completely dead. Yeah. A lot of people don't know that uh, UbiPorts continues on from uh, where Ubuntu Touch was dropped by Canonical. Yeah. And you, there's a few phones you can put that on. You can't buy a phone with it pre-installed, I don't think, yet. But that, that's worth a look. But again, it's limited by the apps and stuff. That's always the problem, isn't it? Yeah, I think, I think it'll be a hard sell for when you're trying to sell a phone that uses Linux for like a grand. You, that's kind of like reaching top-end iPhone territory. Um, and it is going to be a very limited number of people that want to spend money on a phone that costs that much and doesn't have anywhere near as good a specs as like phones at that price. Right, we've got two minutes left. Keep it quick, Popey. Uh, going back to the point about um, Microsoft being good citizens in the open source world, at what point do we move on? Uh, there are people still on this planet who refused to buy Volkswagen because of the, the Second World War, the Germans, right? At what point, I'm not conflating Microsoft with Nazis. Is that the guy, you just invoked, don't go we, there. You've yeah, invoked Godwin's law. No. I'm making a point. Right, so at what point do we stop quoting Barmer saying Linux is a cancer? And at what point do we stop saying embrace, extend, extinguish. The quote of Barmer was three years before one of your panellists was born. Um, I just like Which to one? Uh, <laughs> 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 um, yeah, it's a good point. As I said before, I, I did preface all of what I said there by saying, to play devil's advocate, Here's what people think. Um, so I don't necessarily agree with that myself, but I do think at some point you have to move on. Yeah, that's true. I mean, if you can't forgive and, and you, know, you don't believe people can ever change, then you know, it's a sad place to be because you must believe the world can never change and we're all doomed and all the rest of it. So, you know, cheer up a bit. <laughs> what a great note to end on. <laughs> and on that passive-aggressive, cheerful note. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, thank you to Dan Lynch, Dr. Laura Cohen, Josh Lowe and Caroline Keep, and I've been Joe Thank you very much. <laughs>